0: to get a little light inside. I, hey, Welcome to another episode of Big Girl Panties. I'm Jennifer Ho Dugatz. Back in October of 2015, I woke up and my neck was stiff. I must have been sleeping on it weird, so I took some ibuprofen and it seemed to help a little bit, but would always come back worse. So I waited a few days, then some more. Then a month passed, and my right arm started to go numb. It was interesting when it would go numb. You never know how much of a miracle it is that your body is so interconnected, and when you start losing feeling in a limb, you instantly gain some appreciation for it. I'm extremely stubborn, and think that things will just magically disappear just as easily as they magically appeared to begin with. So November, December, January, and February go by, and I'm still left with the pain in my neck and the numbness and tingling in my arm. I learned that if I can just find the right way to sit or stand, that I can keep it at bay, so it's not that bad. I finally pushed myself to go to the neurologist after being in massive amounts of pain over the last two weeks. And when he asked about my history, I had to come clean about my prior neck issue. Back in 2008... I woke up very much the same way as I did back in October. My neck had a crick in it, and it was extremely stiff. I pondered off to sleeping wrong then, too. A few days went by, and it never got better. It only got worse. Much, much worse. It felt as if someone was twisting my muscles with a sharp knife. There was no position I could get into to alleviate the pain, and swallowing food became painful. I ended up going to my local community hospital emergency room, where they diagnosed me with whiplash and sent me home with some ibuprofen and painkillers. I took them as prescribed, but it got worse. Much, much worse. So bad that I had to hold my head up with my hand in order to drive or see. Again, you never know how much you need the muscles in your neck. The neck pain was at the base of my skull and now excruciating. I couldn't sit or stand for very long. The medicine wasn't working. On my way to work, I called my client in the morning and decided to bring myself to another ER, but this time, it was the large university hospital in my area. I walked into the ER, checked in and the nurse took my blood pressure and temperature while asking me why I was there, along with a slew of other questions. Afterwards, I sat down in one of the many industrial seating areas. You can see that they tried hard to make you feel at ease, with paintings on the wall and plain wood frames, industrial carpeting, pale colors everywhere. But it was anywhere but home. There were a group of police officers chatting about who they had just brought in and what the rest of the day was going to be like. Nurses handing files back and forth to each other and other sickly-looking people waiting to be called in while their loved ones looked at them with pity. And then there was me. Alone and in pain. Just waiting. I was finally called, and they escorted me through double doors that opened by being buzzed in. The homestyle setting was quickly replaced by white walls, hard, cold tile floor, and a cacophony of beeping machines. The nurses placed me in a room, asked me to change into a gown, and I waited some more while laying on a hospital gurney surrounded by hospital supplies, a blood pressure cuff, and a slew of other medical equipment. Three hours had elapsed between entering the ER and when the doctor would see me. I was still in excruciating pain and couldn't lift my head off the pillow unless I turned to my side first. I told him about how I went to the community hospital first, and they sent me home after taking x-rays that showed nothing. He scheduled me for a CT scan. Staring at the tiles on the ceiling flying by above, I was carted in the gurney through the hospital. They moved me onto the slab for the CT machine, and the machine started. If you've never had a CT scan done before, it's not for the claustrophobic. It's a huge machine with a circular hole in the middle, big enough for a person lying on a table to slide into. The technicians tell you to be very still and loud knocking ensues. All I kept thinking about was how scared I was to have a major medical issue. I mean, was this repairable or did I need surgery? I'd never had surgery performed, and the thought of it sent my soul out of my body in fear. After it was complete, they wheeled me back to my room in the ER, and again I waited. The nurse came in to give me morphine for the pain. That was all I remembered for the next several hours. (gasps) I woke up dazed and confused in a hospital room. I had wished that I had told my family where I was. I was scared, anxious, out of my gourd on drugs, and alone. So alone, I thought I was going to die and no one knew where I was. I was no longer in the ER. I think it was nighttime, but I can't be too sure. The only indication that it was night was that my room light was off, and the light from the hall was coming in through the door. There was a man sitting there. From what I could see, he was wearing a janitor's uniform, Spanish, and about 50 years old. He was on a stackable plastic chair and was just watching me. Strangely, I felt at ease with the thought that someone was watching over me, making sure that I was okay. I turned to him and, as loud as I could muster, said, Thank you. And then I went dark again. X-ray room. 18. Yeah. When I woke up, it was daylight and the room was bright. My neck was still in pain, but better. The attending nurse came in, introduced herself as such, and asked if I had wanted anything to eat from the selections of the day. I asked her what the CT scan had found, and how did I get into this room? She told me I had been in the room now for three days. Wait, what? Three days? How is that possible? I just came in last night. She told me what happened to me over the last three days. How I cried and screamed. How scared I was and how I didn't know where I was and that I needed to go home. How awful I was to the nurses on duty. How they didn't know if I needed surgeries and the ramifications of such. But the word that stood out the most was paraplegic. I don't remember any of it, I replied. I had been in the hospital for three days, and no one knew where I was. I asked her about the man sitting in my doorway at night and how I wanted to meet him so I could say thank you for comforting me. She said she didn't know who I was talking about. I described him the best I could, and she said there was never anyone guarding me. I left the conversation after a multitude of apologies for being a difficult patient. Now I was alone with my thoughts. Was that man an apparition? I mean, was I so out of my mind with meds that I was seeing things? Was he a guardian angel? I mean, I'm not one to be religious or believe in angels, demons, or anything in between. I grew up in Oklahoma, smack dab in the Bible Belt of America, where I went to church after church as a child where the right thing to believe, feel, think was constantly shoved down my throat, where life begins at the cross. I resented it, to say the least, so the idea of any religious figures made me cringe until now. That man had given me such peace of mind, and I felt so safe and protected. Whoever he was, to this day, I'm still thankful for him. I quickly grabbed my phone after she left the room and called my family. They were relieved that I was okay and came to the hospital with my boyfriend at the time. My son was still with his father, and by the visit by my doctor, I wasn't going home for at least another four days. He told me that my body was still producing calcium, which, for most, usually ends at the age of 30. My body had produced a pocket of calcium on the top part of my spine, which inflamed the rest of the area, thus the pain. He called it retropharyngeal calcific tendinitis, a rare condition, so rare that he asked permission for his students to come and talk to me. I had been put on steroids at this point and was on the road to recovery. They still were not sure if draining the fluid was necessary, hence the wait-and-see approach. All I kept thinking was that my son's third birthday was coming up, and I needed to get home. The days went by, and with every one, I felt better. I talked to groups of medical students as they would come in and out every few hours. One student took such an interest that she asked to write an article for the Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine. I thought, hey, this is my 15 minutes of fame, and said yes. I was released the day before my son's birthday. I remember running to him and picking him up and giving him the best hug and kiss ever. At one point, I didn't know when and if I would see him again. I didn't know if I would ever be normal again. But in this moment, it was perfect. I didn't need any answers to why it happened. It already did. And this was the result. My standing outside on a beautiful sunny day, hugging and kissing my son. I know that up until this point, I had taken advantage of the fact that my body was always going to be okay. That I was somehow immune to major health issues. I was too young to have anything go wrong. I also realized that I didn't ask for help or even share what was going on with me to the people closest to me. I was proud of being tough and a lone ranger, but in the end, it just left me alone. Vulnerability was never my strong suit. Showing that I couldn't handle something was a sign of weakness to me, and it left me in a hospital room scared and lonely. I had to change my thinking around what vulnerability meant to me. Maybe it wasn't true the story I constructed around it, I believed by asking others for help, I was putting them out. I was disrupting their lives and ultimately that I wasn't worth helping. Everyone's life was more important than my own. My tough exterior gave off that I didn't need anyone and anything also. I had a past full of moments where I felt discarded, so the mask of being tough emerged. I was a rock for everyone. But no one needed to be a rock for me. I had seven terrifying days in the hospital and an amazing reunion with my son to come to this breakthrough. The story I created was that maybe, just maybe, people like helping me because it gives them the chance to be valued and in contribution. And maybe, just maybe, by helping me, they feel that much closer to me because I allowed them to see my vulnerability. And maybe, just maybe, they would be more vulnerable with me. I mean, what's the best that could happen? I would no longer need to work so hard to keep a mask. And instead, I could really connect with others in raw form and to know that maybe Just maybe, I was worth it. As always, I encourage you to get out there, put on your big girl panties, and connect with your world. And if you'd like to connect with us, or see any corresponding pictures or documents that pertain to this episode, you can find us on Facebook. And until next time, this is Jennifer Hodugatz. You've got the words to change a nation, but you're biting spent a lifetime stuck in silence afraid you'll say something wrong if no one ever hears it how are we gonna learn your song so come on come on come on come on you've got a heart as loud as lying so why let your voice be changed maybe we're a little different there's no need to be ashamed big girl panties them is them written and hosted, and hosted by jennifer hotugats and produced out of the Hanger Studios in New York City.